The number one illness in the world is depression. The number one reason for depression is stress. The number one stress is people trying to be in charge of what is not in their control. You're not in charge of what the world delivers to your doorstep. You are in charge of your response. Welcome to another episode of Within Us. My name is Azriela Jankovic, and today I am interviewing the inspirational Noah Ben-Shia. Noah Ben-Shia is one of North America's most respected and beloved poet philosophers. He's a Pulitzer Prize-nominated international best-selling author of 27 books translated into 18 languages. He's a scholar and theologian who has spoken in places such as the Library of Congress and the U.S. Department of Defense. He's been published by the Oxford University Press and the World Bible Society in Jerusalem. His books and inspirational quotes and poems have been read by hundreds of millions of people, and he has inspired countless individuals. It is a pleasure to have him on the show with us today. Welcome to Within Us, Noah. It's a pleasure to meet you uh, both in this incarnation of you and uh, in this incarnation of me. <laughs> yes, time. yes, it's a pleasure to meet you in person. You know, it's funny, I'm sitting here and I'm holding this book that uh-huh. was in my bedroom when I was, what, ele- was this published in 1991? Yeah. I was 11 and my dad used to read me this book. And it's really special because. My dad and I did a lot of things together, but reading wasn't always one of them. But yeah. for some reason, he would pick, you know, very rarely a special book. And this this book and the other Jacob book were the, the two books that we read together. And when I recently revisited these books after meeting you, I realized where these phrases had come from that brought me so much peace. So that is no small thing. Uh, when you talk about this is, um that some of the things you read across time brought you peace and were a blessing. And a number of years back, I was uh, asked to give this talk, or for a number of years, I give on the, uh, the Sabbath someplace. And I was looking at the scripture, uh, the tefillah, the, the prayer that says, uh, Shalom Uvracha. So I said to myself, why does it say peace and blessing to ask for that? Because you would think that a blessing is as good as it gets. And then I realized that any peace you find in life is its own blessing, and any blessing that does not bring you peace is no blessing. So I'm deeply honored that, uh, that, um, that to whatever extent this book was a blessing, uh, more importantly, it brought you peace. Brought me a lot of peace, and I'll tell you that one of the lines was, hope for the best, make peace with the rest. And that is one of the chapter titles in your book, and I feel like it so encapsulates the idea of faith, that uh-huh. we can hope for what we think is the best, and then ultimately make peace, be, be at peace and be whole with this idea that there is a whole, we are part of a wholeness that is so big and so great, and that we can't understand it. No, I, I, I remind people, you were not a drop in the ocean, you were every drop in the ocean. The teachers tell us that the Torah can teach you everything but humility. 
And if you don't come to the Torah with humility, then you can't learn anything. Because if you're filled with yourself, you can't be increased by something greater than yourself. I'll give you an example of it. Fill your lungs with air and take another breath. It's impossible. You cannot take a breath until you release your breath. I have a, a place that I walk. I live on the Pacific Ocean here in Santa Barbara, and I walk every morning. And across time, uh, and I walk very early, I met uh, this uh, young African-American guy that was cleaning the toilets in this park. And he had the best attitude. So I said, I knew him. He always talked to me. He thought, I walk and read, and they always think that's kind of stupefying. And we, we met, and I said, Michael, uh, I said, how do you keep your great attitude? You're in, the, you know, I mean, he, he, it wasn't like he, here he was a neurosurgeon. He was cleaning the restrooms in a, pub, in a state park. He said, oh, I have three rules. So he told me his three rules. And then I came back to him a month later. I said, you know, I went to give a talk someplace, and I talked about my philosopher friend, Michael. And he said, you made me the philosopher? I said, yes. He said, why? I said, because you said three things. You said, suit up, shut up, and show up. And he said, how did that become philosophy? I said, I'll tell you why. Suit up is to realize what emotions you bring to any moment you're in in your life. Do you bring your pride? Do you bring your anger? Do you bring your frustration? What do you, what do you enter that moment? How are you dressing your emotional self? So suit up. Shut up is because until you quiet your own ego, Right? You're important, just like everybody else. Quiet your own ego. Um, and, then, and then I said, and show up. He said, show up? I said, yes. You have to arrive. Be there in the moment. Be in the moment. Hope for the best. Make peace with the rest. You're not in charge. There's a hand larger than ours on the helm. The one time Marlon Brando had an acting coach that gave him this direction Play the part, not the result. Play the part, not the result. The number one illness in the world is depression. The number one reason for depression is stress. The number one stress is people trying to be in charge of what is not in their control. You're not in charge of what the world delivers to your doorstep. You are in charge of your response. Respond, don't react. I wake up in the morning, I'm in the shower, I'm saying, well, you haven't been dishonest to anybody, you haven't aggravated anybody yet, but it's early, you still have the whole day in front of you. So it's the whole day, it's hope for the best, make peace with the rest. I hear exactly what you're saying, it's a constant effort. Sometimes we learn ideas, spiritual ideas that seem simple, simple, but possibly not always easy. And that's the work, is to constantly be reminding ourselves with learning, with prayer, and with acts of connection in this world. How do you think about spirituality in this context? Meeting any moment and seeing every moment is Hashem trying on masks. You know, they don't presume the moment because to presume the moment is, is uh, is blasphemy because we learn in, in learning that that Hashem is bli rashi bli tachli without beginning without end. Uh, the the Christians think that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega of the experience, but the Alpha and the Omega is the first and last letter of the alphabet, and that's an understandable consciousness. But in Judaism, the consciousness is bli rashi bli tachli without beginning without end. 
So not to presume any moment or what, where it'll unfold, how it'll unfold, and uh, humor helps you with that. In this next clip, Noah shares a story of such humor. A test that was given to people who were applying for a job. And of the 800 people who applied for the job, I'll tell you the one guy who got the job. You're driving down the street on a rainy night in a car with only two seats. As you pull past a bus stop, you see three people. It's pouring rain, pouring rain. There's an old friend of yours who we haven't seen for years. There's an old woman who desperately needs to get to a hospital. And there's a man or woman of your dreams. You can only put one person in the car. Who do you put in the car? The guy who got the job answered, I'd get out of the car, I'd give the keys to the car to my friend, let him take the old woman to the hospital, and I would sit on the bench with the woman of my dreams. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's the unexpected, introducing you to laughter, introducing you to love. How did your whole journey begin? When my son was young and somebody asked him what his father does, he says, my father types. Uh, that son of mine now is a PhD in religious studies and a brilliant Islamic and Judaic scholar teaches up here at university. I was recently asked to do a one-man show about Jacob the Baker and stepping into this character on stage sometime in 2020. And they asked me about doing it without a script, but really just sort of answering questions from people as if people were coming into the bakery to talk to Jacob. And I was now in this personality. I said to them I would do this. I would accept this stepping into this character because... Um, I don't, people always said, are you and Jacob the same person? I said, we are, except I'm the one with character flaws. You know, that, that's the difference between the two of us. But I said I would do it. Then I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and saying, oh my gosh, this is a high wire act to stand on stage for an hour and a half and just answer questions in the character of Jacob the banker, uh, sans the hubris that you may have as the author or some of any kind of a claim that you sort of, you know, you, that you pursued or postured in your life. Got up in the morning and said to my wife, listen, I said, yes, but uh, she said to me, forget about it. He says, she says, you're better at this than giving a speech. She said, you've been getting ready for this for 50 years. So just step into this character and uh, um, be authentic. Kierkegaard once said that life is lived forwards and understood backwards. All I knew, when I was younger, I was gonna be a doctor. I was very high, I'm the first person in my family that graduated from high school, let alone college. I was originally born in Toronto from a blue collar family. My family moved a lot. My father trying to make a living. We moved back and forth between Toronto and the inner city of Los Angeles. So I grew up in like an intense Jewish community. And then I grew up in an intense black community and back and forth between these. I went to school in two different countries, back and forth a couple of times. The only thing I knew that has been a constancy in my life has been I have always felt a profound uh, connection to God. I have felt uh, God in my life. Um, well before I could understand it, well before I knew, I remember one time I'd been sort of this high achievement kid and all this stuff. And I graduated from UCLA and I was a dean at UCLA a year after I graduated, I was 22. I had a book of poetry that came out. 
you know, writing poetry is like throwing rose petals over the Grand Canyon and waiting for the echo. You know, I used to say to people, poets don't have to worry about selling out. There was no one buying. And then I became interested in scriptural literature, first Eastern and then Western. And I thought, great, no, now you've made yourself completely unemployable from being the most likely to succeed in valedictorian to like, what are you going to do now? And I'm walking down the street and I, I tell you, I'm crying. I'm uncertain. I don't know. I'm in my middle 20s. And I look to the sky and I say, God, thank you. Thank you for the gifts you've given me. Now, can you tell me what the hell I'm supposed to do with them? Uh, and slowly, um, the truth of what I was supposed to do emerged. They asked Michelangelo once how he sculpted the David. He said, I just have to chip away the parts that don't belong. I used to think when I first came up to give a talk that I would schlep a big bag with everything I knew and how smart it was and all my stories. And then I realized that if I really wanted to see the truth, I only have to go and look in pursuit of my blindness. If I really wanted to hear the truth, I only had to be in pursuit of my deafness. If I wanted to be wise, I only had to be in pursuit of my ignorance. So when I came up to stage at, at, with this recognition, I was only responsible for bringing my, my deafness, my blindness, and my ignorance with honesty. And that's where I could start. And I think once I was thinking that was Pusaggio in Italian, more wise to do that, um, my life began to unfold more clearly to me. But even more to this observation, every year between Christmas and New Year's, my wife and I like to be in San Francisco. We like looking at the store windows and being outside the restaurants. I love cooking, it's a big, big surprise. And uh, we were in our hotel room. It was a rainy night in San Francisco, another surprise. And we're watching the uh, best of uh, PBS shows at, for the end of the year. And the window was open I could, and uh, I could hear the taxi honking in the street below. And they're interviewing Peter Drucker, the great business guru who had been an advisor to GM and General Electric. And they said to him, what was the first question you always asked? He said, the first question I always asked is, do you know what your work is? And when he asked that question, it was like um, a Zen monk was banging me with a bamboo stave saying, wake up. And I thought, in my life, I'd been a best-selling author and I'd achieved these things and I'd been nominated for this and I had some of this and some of the, but I'm really here to be a source of strength to others. That's my work. All the rest of it, whether I'm writing or talking or thinking or studying, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to be a source of strength to others. And that's as, uh, that was about as much clarity as uh, I've achieved and I'm trying to do you know, I'm trying to do that work. Pirkei Avot says you're not expected to finish the work, but neither are you excused from it. You know, I'm imagining you coming to the stage in your mid-20s and, and, and you're thinking that you needed to bring a big bag, like you said, of your knowledge. And then you came to this idea, as you said, that you felt that bringing your blind or deaf spots to the forefront was the work. What does that mean to you? What does that look like? And how can we do that? In any craft, in every craft is always humbled by what somebody else does. A painter can't imagine a ballerina, a ballerina can't imagine a, a composer, a composer cannot imagine a writer. It's just stunning in that regard. But the 
you want to get comfortable enough with the craft so that when you have an inspiration, the craft doesn't get in the way. The challenge, you have to sit down prepared to write something wiser than you are. You have to prepare to access a knowledge that you wouldn't come to as an act of reason, but you would come to as an act of faith, and all faith is a leap. Because reason will only take you so far, because it doesn't make any sense for it to go further. And people who live on the cliff grow wings. If you have the courage to live your life prepared to leap into knowing something bigger than yourself, a willingness to enter into a relationship with, with God. And the premise of that invitation is humility. And so that's the first work of every great artist is to step into something larger than yourself. Picasso was an amazing painter. He was a terrible person. Anybody who writes their only goddesses and doormats, who wants to know him as a person? But when he stepped out of Picasso in that limited macho sense and stepped into something beyond him, uh, his work was exalted in that way. My feeling is that God chooses God's own violins, you know, and how do you step into it? Um, a number of years back, I was uh, in New York and there was a very wealthy woman lived on Central Park South whose husband had been uh, very good friends with Toscanini and the Lincoln Square uh, uh, whole art scene in that. So her, at the end of a concert, uh, Toscanini would ask her husband how he liked the, how he, and he said, oh, the music was great. How was, the music was great. And she said, it wasn't until I read something you wrote in Jacob the Baker that I thought of what Toscanini said to my husband. Because Toscanini said to my husband, not how was my music, how were my silences? How were my silences? And in Jacob the Baker, I write, it is the silence between the notes that makes the music. Toscanini, the same thing is true, by the way, just to extend this, this drosh for a moment, when you sit in the, the, the sukkah, where the sukkah is prescribed that there has to be space between the slots on the top of the sukkah because it can't be a permanent building. It's a remind you, it's a temporary habit. When you open the, the Torah, the first word is Bereshit in the beginning. And the first letter in Bereshit in the beginning is the Hebrew letter Bet. But the Hebrew letter Bet is the second letter in the alphabet. The first letter in the alphabet is the Aleph, and the Aleph is silent. So before the beginning, there is the silence. It's important to remember that, to allow yourself to find peace in that silence. A lot of us feel that unless we're saying something or there's something going on, then nothing's going on. Too often we confused if you're not doing something, you're not doing something. Big mistake to the Western mind. If you're not doing something, you're not doing something. In the Western world especially, there's an idea that silence is something to be afraid of. You know that in the movie uh, George Burns and John Denver, and it's Dear God, I think. The last scene of the movie, George, John Denver is in a car and George Burns is driving. George is obviously playing the role of a deity in this. And John Denver says to him, well, um, can, 
because it's coming to the end of the movie. You know, he says, he says, well, can we talk in the future? Can we talk? And George Burns says, you talk, I'll listen. I think if you recognize that the divine is all present, there's no space between you because you shut your eyes does not, does not mean that God has gone into hiding. You know, it's just, it's a, a recognition that God is omnipresent. The question is, where are you? God is all listening. Are you? God is all seeing. Are you looking? I can't, I want to make it very clear that in having this consciousness, that doesn't uh, mean that in my life, it's mission accomplished. I remind people that we live on a little blue ball spinning in space at 1,060 miles an hour, that you don't know this has nothing to do with the truth of it. You can find your balance and lose your balance at any moment. You can have the terrible twos, you can have your awful 22s, you can have your uncertain 37s, you can have your confused 50s, you can say, I'm getting older sadness when you're 65, and oh my God, how old I am when you're 75. All those moments, we can find our balance and lose our balance at any moment. Uh, the question isn't, a lot of us are raised to think that beating ourselves up is an active character, it isn't. Uh, the challenge isn't to be self-abusive, it's to be self-accountable. So when you witness yourself losing your balance, uh, what are you going to do about it? And the whole idea of penance or shuva in Judaism is about turning and bearing witness. So all personal transformation requires us to bear honest witness on ourself. It's, it's, I hear you. I feel like the idea of tshuva, this returning to our, our true essence is this constant. It's in every moment. We can return in every moment. In you can find moment. your way, lose your way at any moment. No one has ever found their way who has not felt lost. I, um, one of the things that's happened that. across my life has been that at different times, different large companies have wanted to take thoughts of mine and employ them in there in something. For me, I know if I wrote a book of poetry now, you'd sell a thousand copies. But when Starbucks came to me and they said they wanted to take a quote from one of my books and put it on 30 million Starbucks coffee cups, I said, oh, well, then I'll reach some people. And with a major player, um, they came to me. I had been a visiting professor of philosophy at UC San Francisco Medical School, came back to Santa Barbara, and they asked me, could they take thoughts of mine and put them on patient trays in the hospital? Because when people read what I wrote, they felt better about themselves, and people who felt better about themselves got better faster. So somebody heard this, and they wanted me to come and talk to them, and they had one of the major sugar manufacturers in the United States from CNA Sugar and such, and they said, could we take Noah's thoughts and put them on little sugar packets, and uh, people will buy a lot of, we'll steal a lot of packets, we'll make a lot of money. That's how these guys thought. So I said, yeah, okay. Uh, they said, well, what would you call it? I said, I'd call it sugar for the soul. So they put this up. So they started doing it for all the hospitals and schools, and it was like in 50,000 places in Central California in short time. Then Costco came and they started putting it in different regions. And so for a number of years, these little sugar packets were quotes were in 50 or 60 million places a year. Wow. And I thought about the impact because it wasn't like, I, and each of them says, you know, Noah Ben Shea has got my name. It's like this with about 18 different quotes of mine. I was thinking, well, one of the regions where Costco did it, and now Cisco, a major food distribution company, and the largest in North America, they have it. Some guy who's a truck driver 
in Tacoma. It's a quarter to 12 at night. This is all my imagination, of course. And he's going through a divorce and having a really tough time. And he's got a cup of coffee to court. It just, he shakes his sugar packet and it says, and he looks and he says, no one has ever found their way who has not felt lost. And I think for that moment, this guy's life is a little bit less lonely. And that's why I'm here. It's not so he, he doesn't write me, doesn't become a fan, doesn't buy my books, doesn't like, you know, nominate me for anything. I went to, I was asked to give this talk to a group of executives for uh, Gap and Old Navy, big companies in, in North America. So I finished this talk and one of the, there was a woman who was a senior exec and she said, boy, 20 years from now, if I meet somebody, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them what you said. I said, 20 years from now, if you meet somebody, you'll say, you know, 20 years ago, I met this guy. I can't remember whether his name is Noah or Moses, but I, I, <laughs> you know, I, the idea is you just want, I, I feel so blessed in so many ways. I'm from such a humble experience. I just, I, I, you know, if you get to leave the world a little bit better, that's as good as it gets. And I feel blessed. My, I have a son and a daughter and now a grandson. And uh, I've loved uh, great women. And my brothers are, and I are close. And I, my parents were amazing. And I just feel blessed. And I try to pass it along because that's what you do. Well, for about five years, I wrote a weekly column for a group of New York Times papers. And I did this one piece called Remember This, My Children, what you want your children to remember when you're not around to remind them. And there was a line in there that the Starbucks people came and they wanted to put that on that Starbucks coffee cup that they did. And the thought was, do not kiss your children so they will kiss you back, but so they will kiss their children and their children's children. Don't forget, I like to laugh even as I remember that parenting is a process of moving from management to consultant, if you're lucky. <laughs> I'm going to take that one with me. I bet that's why I put it out there. There's a lot of people take that one with them. And they, okay. <laughs> to plant the seed does not make you the tree. My uh, wife says that Noah's a 2000 year old teacher temporarily inhabiting a younger man's body. Uh, somebody asked me if I believed in reincarnation. I said, I do. I just don't think you have to die to be reincarnated. I, um, I have had moments in my life where I felt so profoundly alone and abandoned and felt the, felt uh, the hand of the divine walk in and put a hand on my shoulder in this, in my head, in that emotional place. I have, you know, I, 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 I you know, um, it hasn't been constant and it's not like I was, a, you know, I, I, I don't feel a victim in my life. I feel a participant in my life. And um, to some extent, um, the moments of uh, profound isolation were moments that were necessary for my per profound transformation. I think that those 
portal moments, those, those crossroads moments, do more to reveal you than transform you. Uh, they, uh, some people get older and turn out to be very negative, dark, shallow people. And you can drown in three inches of water. And uh, some uh, people get older and the wisdom that was part of their life at another point comes up. Same with being sick. To get older is a, uh, is a state of isolation. You begin to lose the people you love. Uh, even as, and this is what I experience as the veil between the worlds is very porous. I tell people memory is the sacred garden. Take a walk with someone you love. I think the veil between the world is very porous and people who uh, have passed are not gone. You have, at the end of the day, this is about making peace with yourself. It's a, it's a promise a lot of us make to ourselves and never quite get to it, right? Or I'll deal with that tomorrow. One time after I'd finished a talk, a woman came up to me and she said, uh, I want to ask you a question. Uh, my, my, I, I'm having a difficult time in my relationship because my husband's not the man he once was. And she wasn't talking about a Viagra moment. She was just, she was talking. I said, well, that's interesting. I said, but the question isn't if he's not the man he once was, but whether you're prepared to accept him for the man he might yet become. And your willingness to accept him for the person you might yet become is premised on your capacity to accept yourself on the person you might yet become. So when, when we love people for who they were, it's like we're locking them in to the past when um, we know physicists will tell us this, theologians will tell us this, you're, you're the one across from you and himself, that uh, you know, God doesn't wear a watch. Only God can decide when it's time to open a rose. All time is concurrent. So I tell people, I said, look, you are your body, yourself. You're a time machine. I said, in your memory, you can go backward in time. In your imagination, you can go forward in time. But the only place you can steer the time machine is in the presence. So to borrow from my friend Ram Dass, be here now. You know, that's the question. Be here now in this moment. The Buddha reminds us that all of your guilt won't change the past. All of your anxiety won't improve the future. The here and now, this is your friend Noah, if I might, the here and now is now and here. And that doesn't mean to be inattentive or not to be planning, but just to understand that uh, in, in Yiddish there's a, learned, there's a line that men drach and God lach, men plan and God laughs. My mother used to say, if you want to give God a good laugh, tell her your plans. It's <laughs> a, a great window in my mother's wit. Uh, I love that. I love that so much. And I, I, I find what you're saying about the, the world being porous so fascinating. And I'm curious what that means for you, but I want to share a really quick story with you. I haven't really told anyone this yet, but I want to tell you what happened to me two weeks ago on Thanksgiving. I, it was my 39th birthday and I woke up in the morning. I'd had a dream about my dad's sister who just passed away two years ago. And she was in a wheelchair and she was, felt like she was calling me to come to California for some reason. She's not there physically but the whole family was going to be together at, at, at a home in the Sierra Nevadas where she, her ashes were scattered under this persimmon tree. 
And so I decided to buy myself a ticket from Israel. I flew to California. I surprised my parents and I spent the whole weekend with family. And for the first time since my aunt's passing, I went to the tree where her ashes were scattered. And I was brought by a cousin of mine and, and the cousin had been at the service and she told me, she said, you know, the service was so beautiful. We sang John Denver's song, Take Me Home Country Road. And everyone was singing and everyone was crying. And, and I, I was so touched by it, it was so beautiful. I felt like she was there with me. Three days later, I was with my mom and we had this beautiful walk along the beach and we talked and walked for hours. And then we walked into a little vegan cafe in Encinitas. And it was so beautiful. It had uh, meditation cushions on the floor. And there was just something about, there were books and just gorgeous atmosphere. I said to my mom, this is so beautiful. I'm going to cry. And the second I said that, the song, Take Me Home, Country Road, came on. And I just had to cry. <laughs> and it was like of all the songs that could have come on. And, and I said to my mom, what, someone a funeral she said this was at aunt jill's funeral and it was like of course she wanted me to come here and I'm, i know it might sound like i don't know maybe it sounds crazy but to me it's like what are the odds sometimes with these moments ozzy coincidence is god's way of remaining anonymous i love that coincidence is god's cloak of humility mm -hmm. So beautiful. It's so true. And I think when we open our eyes to that, we can experience that porousness, right? They once asked the poet Robert Lowell about reading a poem in translation. And he said, reading a poem in translation is like kissing a bride through the veil. I began to think about it. And I said that the veil between the worlds is very porous. If you think of, of the veil, it's a series of interlocking spaces. So you just choose a space, choose an emptiness, choose a silence that you will enter. When you bought that ticket, you said, I'm on the bus. And when you got on the bus, your aunt said, honk, honk. The day after I bought the ticket, okay, I went on to the internet and I saw this picture of a VW bus that said, says underneath, the only person you need to be worry about being better than is the person you were yesterday. And it was the first time I'd seen that quote since my aunt posted it four years ago. And you just said bus. So here we are again. I don't have any confusion that we it's, are in. That we are in that we are in God's presence. For me, not to recognize that you and I in this conversation are in God's presence, that would be blasphemous. I'll give you an example of how this plays, just because some people think like, oh, these are like two kind of whacked out late 60s people or something. Uh, for a long time, people thought that when you and I are sitting here, that there's this, you know, a lot of a lot of distance, a lot of space between us. But when Linus Pauling won uh, the first uh, Nobel Prize. He won the second one for peace, but his first one was for chemistry. And it was in understanding how chemical bodies adhere to each other. So like people thought when you put paint on something, just one thing painted on top. He said, that's because you're not seeing anatomically. If you see anatomically, everything is interactive. So between you and me, this air 
isn't like a distance. It's the same air that's interacting with all of your cells and interacting with all that we don't see things only speaks to our blindness. If you look at, I'll give you an example. You look at a light bulb and you think, oh, there's the light. Well, actually, it's a vacillating pulse between two stems that's as dark as it is light, but the, post, the speed with which it travels is set up for the same speed with which your eye can see. It's like a movie. When you see a movie, when they were showing you the different images, the different slides in a movie, if it went any faster, it'd be a blur. If it went any slower, you'd be looking at a series of still lights. We see according to our blindness. So what you have to see again is when you don't see the connection in some things, what you're witnessing is your blindness. Because people thought the world was flat didn't mean the Columbus sailed over the edge. You know, you have to witness this. So I think it uh, makes a lot of sense to me now what you, you said earlier about bringing your blind and your deaf spots to the forefront. It makes a lot more sense now and it feels very much related to the difference between space and, 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 and no space, like the, the veil that you spoke about. It's, it's not concrete. There's the space between like the fronds on top of uh, the sukkah, the yeah. booth that we make outside. And it's, there's so much connectivity here. It's really so beautiful. And time flies by so quickly speaking with you. I have to say, it's been a real pleasure. The easiest place to connect in some way is noahbenshia.com, N-O-A-H, cryptically enough, Benshia, B-E-N. S-H-E-A. I tell people I get both anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic literature in the mail because some people think I'm Ben Shea instead of uh, Ben. So NoahBenShea.com. Look, if you if you Google Noah Ben Shea anywhere, uh, this morning somebody wanted me to look up something and I saw 35,000 places where you can see something I've written uh, or a book or something. You'll find me. I'm Unbelievable. Not- I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hidden in that world. Uh, I'm very excited about uh, my one-man show in the evening with Jacob the Baker that I'm doing on stage in Santa Barbara. But I just want to say that I'm, um, I'm, I'm profoundly grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation with you because I think you are an honest voice who will lend this voice to others. And for that, my work is to try and be an ally to other people. I want you to know there's a lot of people lives will touch. The smallest stone dropped in the widest sea will send radiating circles onto shores you will never know. And for all the people who you and I never know, whose life in some way may be touched by our conversation today, they send their thanks through me to you for doing the work you're doing and helping to. You are so, so welcome. It's a pleasure. Be strong, be strong, and be a source of strength to others. Inspiration is exactly what this was for me. I have so much gratitude for Noah for having joined me and been in this interview, and for you for joining me and for sharing with me in your notes and in your emails and on Facebook in my group circle of insight. It's really wonderful to be on this journey with all of you. If you haven't joined the group yet, it's Circle of Insight on Facebook. And it's a group where we focus on staying conscious, being authentic, and being real with our processes, whatever it is that we're working on emotionally, professionally, interpersonally, intrapersonally. It is all about connecting and staying real. And we're stronger when we're together, friends. We really, really are. 
So thanks again for joining me. I want you to know that all week, this is the week of Hanukkah, it's eight days. It's also the week where Christmas will be celebrated and it is a time of miracles. So all week long, I am donating half of the proceeds of my new book, Beyond All Things, to a really wonderful cause. I am donating half of the proceeds of my book to those in need in the city of Jerusalem. There are so many people around us at all times who need things like food and shelter and really basics that we cannot take for granted. So if you would like to support this cause, you can buy my book and know that half of the proceeds are going to those in need in Jerusalem. The book is called Beyond All Things and it is on Amazon. And if you want to give directly, you can contact me. I'm going to be posting a link on my website to give to this, this really important cause. But in the interim, feel free to reach out and let me know that you're interested in donating any amount, even a few dollars, really can go a long way. And thanks again for being here. I bless you to see so much light, to be a source of light. And you know, the amazing thing about light is that one single candle is enough to light up this world. I bless you with abundant peace now and always. Thanks so much for being here. And remember that which appears to be beyond all things is also very much within us.